Welcome to the Silver Lining Podcast, where we ask academics how East Asian states view themselves and how they relate to each other in the wake of the COVID pandemic. In today's episode, we chat with Yuting Dong, a PhD candidate in history and East Asian languages at Harvard University, about modern Japanese history. More specifically, about the social and technological history behind the construction of colonial urban infrastructure in Northeast China under Japan's influence and control. So the paper we're here to talk about today specifically investigates Japan's empire and technology in Manchuria from 1905 to 1945. Could you introduce to our listeners briefly this paper that you wrote, as well as the concept of environmental history? So the paper I wrote, I don't know whether you will share the paper with the audience, but hopefully the paper is going to be out as an article quite soon. So it's called Red Brick Know How. And um, uh, so the paper I'm uh, on this paper, the paper is part of my dissertation. And I'm mainly talking about how uh, Japanese experts, colonial experts, especially technical experts, absorbed and appropriated vernacular knowledge from Chinese labors and turned this part of vernacular knowledge into, translated this part of vernacular knowledge into part of um, um, the knowledge that they can use to rule both Manchuria and later larger part of Asia. And uh, environmental history is something I have a deep interest in. It's an, it's a, component of this paper and in other parts of my dissertation, I explore it a little bit more. But my use of environmental history is more treating the environment as an actor, but not like an actor with an agency because climate and geography doesn't speak. But uh, um, if you are familiar with the Brulo Notour's uh, action network theory, you'll be more comfortable with the concept of how to use environment as an actor is basically talking about how environment influenced or interacted with human actions. So for example, in this paper, I talk about uh, um, because the, um, the climate in Manchuria is really different from Japan's home islands. It's much drier, it's colder, and it's windier. So when coming to Manchuria to build, the Japanese experts found out that their knowledge about how to build red brick, how to make red brick in the, because red brick is usually made in open air. So they found out their previous practice of making red brick doesn't work in Manchuria. And uh, on top of that, there were so few skilled Japanese brick mansions actually travel to Manchuria because like the salary is in the, like uh, in, before Manchuria was established in 1932, now so many skilled workers actually come to Manchuria. So the Japanese experts have to rely on Chinese um, kind of skilled workers, skilled brick mansions, as well as uh, Chinese laborers to produce red brick. That's how the environment play an important role because if the climate and geography in Manchuria is similar to Japan, they might use their previous knowledge to produce the same red brick. But because Manchuria climate and uh, geography is so different, they have to learn from the people who know how to, how to produce red brick on the ground. Could you explain more the significance of red brick? How was it used domestically by Japan versus perhaps imperially? The reason I started with red brick is actually by accident. I said in the early time, it's uh, my interest first in uh, Manchuria or Japan's uh, building in Manchuria is starting from urban history. So I was really interested in architecture and uh, kind of architecture styles. But then you realize most of the styles were actually red brick and that caused my uh, attention why they choose red brick. 
and uh, what's the meaning of red brick and how they actually produce red brick. And uh, so what I found is Japanese uh, had a, a high respect of red brick as a building material, both uh, symbolically and imperatively, because symbolically red brick means Western civilization. So when they traveled to uh, Europe and America, they found the red brick is widely used for domestic and uh, governmental architectures. And then uh, in basically in 1976, I think I remember the date right. So when they start building the, uh, the red brick street in Japan, they, start, uh, they invited a, a British architect to help design the street. And that's where they got the concept of red brick in the, like one of the early practices of using red brick to build in Japan. And later when they come to Manchuria, they think, red, yeah, we should spread the civilization through the material red brick. And uh, that's how they kind of use the concept, use the material red brick in Manchuria. Could you tell us a bit about the relations between Chinese workers and Japanese colonial experts? How were the contributions of the Chinese later intentionally erased? Oh, yeah, that's, that's actually one of the core parts of the article and also the dissertation. So because um, it comes back to our previous discussion about environmental history. So environmental historians so far have paid a lot of attention to how environment interacted with human society. And um, some of them even mentioned like uh, workers and labor, like people know environment through labor, like uh, people interacted with environments through labor, through work. Um, this one of the respective uh, representative research is by Richard White, Organic, uh, Organic Machine. So if you talk, look at that book, you can find like a human no environment through labor. And in my uh, chapter, as in my article as well, the dissertation, um, I talk about uh, the, because as we mentioned, the environment and geography is, diff geology is, geography is different. So the Japanese have to rely on Chinese workers and the Chinese workers actually have started building uh, playing with all kinds of bricks before Japan came to Manchuria. So, and also in other chapters, I look at how um, Chinese um, people deal with uh, stone and uh, deal with land property rights. So when coming to Manchuria, Japanese experts, they found out they have to rely on the local knowledge in order to understand the practice. For example, in Red Brick, they have to absorb the Chinese, like they, the Japanese engineers hired by the colonial institution will report and observe in detail how the Chinese workers actually made brick. Uh, and all the tiny practices, for example, instead of putting the brick on the ground as they did in Japan's home island, uh, on, on, on top of a plank, as they did in Japan's home island, they actually have to put the brick on ground in Manchuria because um, the heat from the ground is, uh, can, can bake the brick, can dry the brick better than on top of a plank. So they, they noted down all these tiny details and then trans put them, compiled them in their technical reports to their boss. And the, the, in this practice, and also Japanese architects did experiment using Chinese brick laying methods, layering methods. And then by using, by uh, compiling all this kind of detailed technical reports, the colonial experts depicted themselves as part of the, the experts of the knowledge because in their reports, they don't mention, okay, this is, um, 
uh, we interviewed this trans laborer, and this is how they said the reason we did that. And uh, later, uh, one Japanese, one experts from Japanese home islands wanted to know how they uh, use red brick in Manchuria, or uh, use. Um, use land ownership in Manchuria, they have to interview or rely on the uh, reports compiled by these colonial experts. So the colonial experts really become a, like a medium that translated the local knowledge to the imperial knowledge. So for those people who um, are experts of say, say like uh, uh, ceramics, uh, uh, land practice in Japan's home islands, they rarely interacted with the local Chinese society. Instead, they, they interacted with the, the medium, the colonial experts, and they, they relied on their reports to reproduce the, the image of Manchuria. So in, in the second translation, like in the reports or articles produced in the metropole, you rarely see any mention about trans workers or why they did that. So in the medium mass, mass um, report, sometimes you can still see some traces. That's how I got the translation process figured out. And how is red brick perceived in Manchuria, China, and Japan today? Are there any differences in perception? Yeah, that's. I think that's um, the um, that's really the end of the paper, and I would love to spend a lot more time on it, but I couldn't. So. That's, that's the interesting part about red brick. If you have ever been to Japan, you can see red brick is a kind of relic. It's a nostalgia. They will even compile like a big list of the, the 100 most famous and most important red brick architecture in Japan. So you have red brick uh, warehouse, you have red brick, mostly red brick warehouse. And uh, uh, one of several, the ones I visited, one is in Yokohama and the one is in, I think, uh, I forgot the, uh, um, in the neighborhood Tokyo and uh, the other one is in uh, Shikoku. And uh, they make posters to show, okay, this is part of our history. It's uh, in the Taisho and Meiji era, it's give us the European romantic feeling. But in Chinese, this, this red brick building is actually partly prohibited because, um, so for a long time after 1945, China, Chinese people still, at least in Northeast China, they still use red brick as one of the main building material because red brick um, over the time spread out and uh, it's easy to produce, it's cheaper and all you need is uh, clay. So you just take the farmland the, uh, for certain depths and you get the clay. So uh, for a long time, they still use red brick to build a lot of houses. So these days, if you go to Changchun, go to Northeast China, you can still see a lot of red brick houses, but they are not well preserved. A lot of them were actually on the edge of being dismantled because right now China is going through this fast urbanization process. So red brick houses were dismantled in order to, give, to make space for high rise buildings, right? So like uh, in Changchun, you can see like several red brick houses that were still preserved because they were related to say uh, Russian occupation earlier before 1905. Um, in the neighbor of Changchun, like uh, you have a, a red brick soldier, soldier camp, but that, that camp I when I visited, it was sealed up. It's become part of private, but also quasi um, uh, governmental property. 
So like you can see the in China, there, this kind of uh, uh, the coexistence of nostalgia or kind of uh, keeping a historical record in order to let us remember the imperial, like imperialism, how Russia and Japan invaded us. But on the other hand, you see in everyday life, they don't really preserve the everyday practice of using red brick. That's fascinating. And red brick in Manchuria is an excellent example of the relations between an imperial power and colonial subjects. Are there any other examples of how the Japanese spread civilization through materiality? Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's really interesting because so in my dissertation, I mainly look at uh, Manchuria. Uh, in later research, I would like to look at it more in a comparative perspective, look at Korea and Taiwan to see how, and even Southeast Asia, even though the time is very limited to see how um, Japanese imperial kind of engineers or imperial uh, researchers as well officials negotiated with the local society through materiality. So for example, um, when they build the roads in Manchuria and that as another chapter of my dissertation write about, they. Uh, in the beginning, they tried to use Magadam. As we know, like a Magadam uh, road is a, a paving road using small gravels. Like the, this is a method that was first used, um, invited in, in Britain. So the, by using that method, you can, you can, all you need to do is to uh, sort out really tiny gravels. And then you don't need the skilled workers usually. You just use um, like, a, you use, uh, not unskilled workers to sort out the gravel and you use the paving machine kind of a roller to pave the road. But when they use that, when they try to implement a, a paved road in Manchuria, they first came up with like a paving with magnum and paving with wood. But then the interesting part is they have to adjust to the local practice because in Manchuria, they still have uh, the Chinese merchants still largely used horse wagons to transport products. In order to attract trans workers, Chinese merchants to travel on their road, they have to make, make sure the road can survive the, the busy traffic of a horse, horse hoofs. But the Magadan proved to be really fragile under the horse hoofs. So later they, they have to come up with new method. One of the methods they come up with is flagstone pavement. So you cut a gravel stone in, uh, in like a, a slice of a certain size and use that to pave the road. But then because of the, you use flagstone, they use flagstone, they have to rely on Chinese brick mansions. So because flagstone is not as easy to produce as gravels. So you, you see like the truth of materiality will really influence the kind of the relationship between Japanese colonial uh, engineers and the local Chinese society. Thank you. It seems that the story that you've been telling us about um, bricks um, and materiality um, kind of points to technology. Is it a specific kind of materiality and how like how do you uh, understand and write about technology in your paper? And also it seems that your paper talked a little bit on, on technological determinism. Could you tell us more about it and how it is context contextualized in the story of Red Brick and Manchuria? Yeah, thanks. The, that's a great question. So um, how do I start? I think technology is a, a really important aspect of my paper. 
So the material, the reason I use materiality is the largely drawing on current discussion, theoretical discussion about materiality. For example, you can read uh, uh, Bennett's uh, vibrate matters or Morton's uh, ecological thoughts. So there is this trend to discuss materiality instead of um, instead of say like a action network theory and stuff. Because the reason we, we I want to use materiality is to really pay attention to the to the physical aspect of Japan's imperialism. For example, if you uh, if I look at say architectural styles, I mainly got the kind of the perspective of the of the designers, but I don't I don't have the chance to explore how this design was implemented. So my use of materiality is really to uh, look at the the very kind of ground interaction between the the top and the bottom. So I feel materiality is a good lens to explain that. And also materiality, according to the current research, as well as people who study infrastructure, they all point out by looking at the materiality, you can see a challenge of hierarchical relations. Because if we look at like uh, say uh, styles, it's largely a style that uh, is determined by the kind of imperial uh, designers. But then if you look at materiality, uh, how, this, how this building is created, you can see the the Japanese engineers or Japanese official, imperial officials not always have the upper hand. Sometimes they have to listen to, they have to interact with Chinese workers or local larger community. For example, when they want to purchase land, if we really look at land, it's, uh, they, they don't, they cannot, sometimes they are even tricked by Chinese brokers because they know how to fake the land certificate and how to, like, how to, um, how to do the business better. So by looking at materiality, I also want to show the hierarchy in empire is not as solid as we imagine. But uh, like, uh, it's not to say Japan doesn't um, didn't colonize. It's like imperialism is not exploitive. But then by looking at the materiality, you can see how they interacted. That's how I understand materiality, or how I use it in my dissertation and this 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 uh, article. Uh, another part about um, about uh, technology is uh, uh, in my paper. I didn't mention this is um, it's about like uh, previous research have talked about uh, technology, technological determinism, and later scholars of technology and science and um, um, medicine have already discussed how this this concept of technology determinism sh should not uh, cannot be applied fully. So. To, to explain that technology determinism, some they refer to, um, for example, Japan has a higher technology, technological skill. That's why the society, when they, they when uh, a certain technology will determine a certain kind of social structure or social interaction. But later research have already shown that uh, this, this technology and society is more in an interactive relationship. Like especially when you look at users, you, you see the users use technology not as the, the designers imagined, right? Some people, um, one easy example, recent example is you like uh, they have dishwasher machine, dishwasher in Korea, but then when you open it up, people actually use that to store kimchi. So it's uh, when you look at the users and uh, you see technology is not really determining society, but it's you know really redefining like uh, it's mutual define, defining pr process. So in my article, I um, 
the reason I interacted with the the idea about the history with our scholars of history and technology and uh, and uh, mainly technology, not so much about science, is uh, is to show to borrow or uh, to kind of uh, to uh, interact with the scholars who talk about how social actors change the uh, appearance or the usage of technology. For example, in Red Brick, um, because um, the Chinese, the Japanese have to interact with the Chinese brick nations in order to make red brick. They also have to rely on Chinese producers. Sometimes they just outsource the, the production of red brick to Chinese producers. And then uh, the Chinese producers will produce brick of different uh, format. So um, you can see the technology is not all Japanese carried the whole bucket basket of uh, red brick know-how to Manchuria, but it's refined and redefined in in the local society. Yeah, thank you for ex explaining the, uh, the, the concept in the context of um, red bricks in Manchuria. Based on your understanding of materiality in Imperial Japan, how does that shape your understanding of the East Asian region today? Uh, like, how do you connect that historical um, context to what we have today? That's a wonderful question. So in my dissertation, I also look at uh, um, 1945 to 1953. So looking at the aftermath of Japan's empire. And uh, later I will probably add a chapter in the book talking about uh, like uh, even later time. So um, what I want to present is uh, the East Asian, like uh, the colonial interaction is a really important part of the history in order to understand the interconnectedness of between East Asian countries. So I feel most of the uh, many historians who study Japan's empire in East Asia have made that point, like uh, because of the, um, because so for example, the Koreans who are trained in Manchuria, uh, who are trained in Japan will, even in the post-war time, will still rely on say their connections in Japan, in the metropole in order to build, rebuild um, South Korea in the modern era. And then in, for example, one book by um, Hiromi Mizuno, Aaron uh, Moore and uh, Demetia, uh, they talk about uh, uh, engineering Asia. They talk about how the network of uh, colonial, of Japanese imperialism in Southeast Asia, in South Asia actually su sustained um, and provided a base for Japan to, um, to re-expand into Southeast Asia after 1945, in 1960s and 70s. So in my research, I want to highlight the deep material connection between Northeast China and Japan, especially if you look at an, after 1945, we can see the many Japanese technical expert, experts were actually retained in China. So they were used by the, held by the uh, Kuomintang and the Gongchandang uh, Communist Party to build, rebuild like uh, People's Republic of China after 1949. So this part of people left Japan, left for Japan in 1953, and some of them re went back to Manchuria in 1970s when China and Japan opened up the diplomatic relationship again. So you see the by tracing the footsteps of of Japanese engineers, especially who were uh, who worked in Manchuria, who worked in Northeast China in colonial era and the immediate colonial era, you can see. Um, a lot of the post-war construction in China had the traces or influence of Japanese engineers in the varying degrees. 
So I feel by looking at the kind of the laundry or the cross the boundary of 1945, we can really see how the colonial history actually um, for good or for bad, kind of tied the region of East Asia together. That's fascinating. Um, just out of curiosity, um, I was wondering as I read the paper, um, this concept of environmental history and uh, materiality, um, how can they be applied to like maybe some examples of our contemporary time and the contemporary East Asia or China and Japan specifically? Um, is there like interesting example that you could introduce us to? If we talk about uh, like the environmental history aspect of like one of the obvious examples that came to my mind is not in Northeast China, but for example, the uh, Three Gorges Dam uh, in China these days. So it was first um, Jiang Jieshi, Sun Zhongshan wanted to build the Three Gorges Dam, right? And then he imagined this. And then in 1940, in 1943 or 70, 40, 30, in 1930s and 40s, uh, Jiang Kai-shek, Jiang Jieshi, he, he invited American um, experts who built the Hoover, Hoover Dam to to talk about how to design the 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 like uh, three gorges dam, and this this concept of using American Hoover Dam to build a uh, dam dam in China is also imported by Japanese uh, in 1937 when they try to build a dam in Northeast China. So when we if we look at uh, so they say. They say, what well, if we build the whole mountain, the Fengman Sui Dianzhan, this is where, like, this will be part of the, um, this will be had the same size of lake as Hoover Dam. So you can see this concept of this, like, uh, how to change the modern landscape. Like, what is a modern landscape? Where we should get energy? How we should uh, use uh, our, like, uh, rivers? And how we should use our environment? for industri industrial production travels around the globe. So if we really uh, look out, it's not only about Japan, China, but also about Japan, America, China, and probably about other aspects. And when Japan built them in Manchuria, the dam for Manchuria Dianzhan, which is still in function today, <coughs> they also got German machines to build that dam. So like uh, this, um, this, concept of what is a modern city. For example, Japan defined modern city should have paved roads, modern city should have red brick houses. It's first, you cannot really say it's Japan because the you can see the prototype in Europe as well. But then by the Japanese, when they built those paved roads, red brick in Manchuria, it directly impressed the local Chinese society. And they think, okay, this is what a modern city should look like, uh, paved roads and red brick. So a lot of time they adopted the same design, not because of um, uh, we want to learn from Japan, but uh, because of competition. We want to compete with Japan. We want to show like uh, the transnational, like uh, Chinese designers or Chinese builders want to show, okay, as Chinese, we can build the same type of modern city. So this is like a paradox. On the one hand, you want to, um, you want to overcome the modernity standard set by Japanese officials, but on the other hand, you are adopting the same standards yourself. So it's this kind of twist, this uh, uh, kind of conflicts that I found really interesting. And I think it still happens nowadays, like uh, um, by 
by rejecting something that Japan used or by uh, looking at what Japan used in uh, China or Korea or other countries in East Asia will still adopt the same pattern, but they wanted to do it better. But by doing it better, they are adopting the same pattern. So interesting that you say that because I think we've spoken to a lot of scholars recently who are looking at that kind of 20th century period and all the kind of complexities of it. I think even in Korea, you know, to this day, it's very difficult for people to come to terms and reckon with what that imperial period meant and all the implications it has politically today. So thanks for speaking to that. I think that's it for all the main questions we have for today. You've done such a great job speaking to the complex aspects of your paper, so thank you. You've just been listening to the Silver Lining Podcast with Yanhua Chen, Jiyun Moon, and Jasleen Chegar. This podcast is a project from the Columbia Global Collaboratory, which seeks to tackle global challenges through cross-cultural collaboration. Thanks to our guest speaker this week, Yu Ting Dong, and thanks to you for tuning in.